I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. My name is Justin Bua. I'm an artist. I'm your host, and we have Lizzie Dastin. She's also an art historian and a host. She's also a host, I should have said, and she happens to be an art historian. And definitely not an artist. Those who cannot do, teach in this case. And those who cannot teach, teach Jim. You ever heard of that? You ever heard no. of that? No, really? Those who can, can't do, teach. And those who can't teach, teach Jim. Oh, that's so mean. <laughs> I know. It's just a dumb expression. So I wanted to thank CAA for sponsoring us. Um, please go, if you guys are interested in checking them out, to collegeart.org. And CAA was founded ages ago in 1911. It's the world's largest support organization for professionals in the arts And they host an annual art historians conference where over 300 professionals speak on their research and their innovations within this field. And this year, the conference is February 13th through 16th in Manhattan on Valentine's Day as your little romantic treat. Should you be interested, I'll be speaking on public art. So definitely check out CAA. They are movers. And thank you guys so much. So... Today, Lizzie has chosen a topic uh, close to her heart, being that the election is happening, and this is going to be very timely. So, Lizzie, take it from here. (laughs) Of course. Well, as I hope you guys know, the midterm elections are on Tuesday, November 6th, and we hope that everybody is going to vote. And in honor of what's going on in the world, I thought that it could be kind of cool to talk about politically active art. So, yep, politically active art. Yeah, it's important. You have brought up Guernica a bunch of times, so maybe we can start there. Sure. Uh, you know, Guernica to this day, I think, is Guernica is a piece that Picasso did uh, of his hometown, Guernica, that was, that was bombed. In 1937. in 1937. So, contextually, this is at the brink of World War II. And he basically, in his glorious, masterful, gigantic painting, because a lot of paintings are not uh, as gigantic as you think that they are when you see them in books, like the Mona Lisa, for example, is very small. Uh, but but this painting was particularly huge. I've seen it at the uh, in Madrid. The Reina Sofia. Where is it? The museum is called the Reina Sofia. It used to be at MoMA, but... Really? Yeah. I could have swore to God I saw it at... Uh, in Spain. Well, the Reina Sofia is in Madrid. Okay. <laughs> I don't know I where you I said. thought I saw it somewhere else. Are you sure? The Prado? I'm pretty sure. Why don't you look it up while I can talk okay, but, about okay, the work? Okay, so anyway, so this is a painting that is absolutely glorious, masterful, one of the greatest achievements in art history. And it was about that time and that bombing and the atrocities of war and criminality, and just it was so powerfully violent, and co- it was done in collage form and painting and all these different mediums, right? Yeah, so Picasso said that this was the only political work that he's ever done, 
And he took his signature style of really fracturing the picture plane of the world into these shards. And as we've talked about earlier in the 20th century, he, along with George Brock, they pioneered a movement called Cubism. And he does maintain this cubistic aesthetic in Guernica because the work is not representational in a way that we might expect. And so there are angular, uh, there's an angular treatment of the subjects and there's a simplicity of the form. And the size is also, as you mentioned, really distinctive for Picasso. It's so large. It's mural scale. It's, I believe, 11 feet wide, which is tremendous. And The reason for the size was intentional. Not only did it echo the severity of the bombing, but also it emphasized that the bombing was never really written about in the media. And he makes another another really uh, a tie to media culture in the color palette. It's grisaille, which means grayscale. And grisaille is how images in in media publications are printed. Typically, they're not in color. It's black and white and shades of gray. And so that's why Guernica looks the way that it does and is painted the way that it is because he is dramatizing the fact that newspapers did not write about this bombing nearly as much as they should. And it was kind of underemphasized. And he wanted to correct that by overemphasizing using a scale. And the iconography is really interesting. There's so much anguish and murder and death. And the two central figures, there's a bull and a horse. And often in Picasso's oeuvre, he self-identifies as a bull. And so the question of whether this particular bull is a self-portrait is a really interesting one. He said that it was this embodiment of aggression. And so he at least in the press, did not personally identify with this bull. But that's always something that we should should ask ourselves when we visually analyze. And something that I read once that's always stuck with me about Guernica is that a Nazi came to a studio when he was painting the work and saw it and asked in an accusatory tone, did you do this? And Picasso responded, no, you did. But, um, Guernica was at the Prado, and it got moved. To the Reina Sofia? Yes. Okay, cool. So, I, I so remember, we're both right. Well, yeah. No, I just remember when I was in Spain, in Madrid, I saw it at the Prado. But truly, not many artists have achieved such great epic works. I feel like that that falls in the line of an epic masterpiece and certainly a political one. Uh, and the, those, the scale alone is just makes me think about when I went to go see Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel and you see the scale, it just it's glorious and it blows you away. And the same with uh, Raft of Medusa uh, by Jerry Cohen and, and as well as Liberty Leading the People by Delacroix. Uh, I think that those pieces have that epic feeling in them, subject matter. And Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People, by the way, is another great example of a political work. Uh, that painting is a a very powerful, masterful example of scalability and politic and just political fervor that went into that work is heavy. It's like heavy, and it makes you you feel something. 
But there's also an allegorical aspect of that particular work that I think is really cool, is that Mm -hmm. liberty has been transitioned into this female figure. Mm -hmm. And so liberty is no longer a concept, but it's a woman. Yeah, it's really cool. And she looks like she's kicking ass. You know what I mean? She's just on top of the world, literally. Um, And I think that if you're going to talk about more artists than that, Oh, yeah, I have okay. a whole arsenal I knew, of I knew. political I was, artists. I'm, I'm waiting. So why don't you lead? <laughs> sure. Well, somebody that we haven't spoken about who is definitely this politicized figure is Diego Rivera. Mm. And his work that he did in Rockefeller Plaza, mm. I think we should briefly talk about. Sure. And Diego Rivera, he was a Mexican muralist, and he and his two contemporaries, Siqueiros and Orozco, mm. they were really the the big figures of Mexican muralism. And after the Mexican Revolution, which ended in about 1920, these guys, they took to the streets and to public spaces to paint work that could be didactic, moralizing, and could reunite a community that had been so fractured through these uh, this turmoil. And so I think that's an early example of how public art can be this or can have a political agenda. And all three of them were communists. However, their communism differed from each other's. For example, Siqueiros was a a big supporter of uh, Stalin and Rivera was a supporter of Trotsky. And Rivera actually housed Trotsky for a while. And Siqueiros attempted a, an assassination attempt on Trotsky. So you can imagine that there were some fractures within the, the community of these three artists. And each of them came to the United States and did significant work. And this was happening for the U.S. at a time of great turmoil. We had just gone through the crash of the stock market. Our economy is dead. And the government is trying to instill hope in our future. And this was all supportive of Roosevelt's three R's, the the New Deal. So we have relief, recovery, reform. And artists like Rivera, Siqueiros, and Orozco were commissioned to do work that was intentionally trying to create this agenda, this propaganda of hope. And, and it was through the WPA, right? The yeah, exactly. The Workers' Program. Progress Administration? Workers' Program. <laughs> WPA. I know my, I, you know, I only know that because my grandfather was a big, was also part of that, and he, he was also uh, commissioned to do work, public public art, which oh, is, that's cool. was, it was a big public art movement, which is so weird to think about today, that there was so much attention and money towards that, which was great, which was really, in a lot of ways, the hope and the beautification of public space would help elevate the morale of the people. Absolutely. And I also think it's kind of stunning how, how, these commissions were not given to people who are energetically aligned with the political regime of the country. And the U.S. is a capitalistic society. And so for the government to pay openly communist artists to do these commissions, it's just, what did they expect? Of course there was going to be some controversial stuff. And in Rivera's Rockefeller mural, this is a really incredible example. So he was given very few parameters, just the title. 
and it was to be called uh, Man Controller of the Universe. And he created this incredibly complex weave of different figures and you can read it. I hope that you guys are looking this up because it's impossible to visually dissect in the amount of time that we have. But I read it from left to right and how the left, it's kind of the good, the the bad side, the bad side. So on the left, we have people who are consumed by capitalism and we have flappers who are just so blissfully unaware of the political tenor of the world because they're drinking and enjoying and listening to music. And so it's almost this conspicuous consumption. And we have uh, fascist symbols and war technology, and there are some cells that are, are negative and diseased. And actually they're, well, I'll, I'll get to that later. I kind of get ahead of myself. And then the right-hand side is the quote-unquote good side. It's the side of the Russian revolutionaries who were also about overthrowing the bourgeois society in favor of the proletariat. And so that's very close to what the Mexicans were doing just a few years later, or really contemporaneously with their own revolution. And we have communist figures, and we we have a ton of recognizable people. We have Marx, we have Lenin. And when Rockefeller saw this, even though the entire work, every single inch of it is politicized, he said, whoa, Lenin is in that? You're going to have to take him out. And Rivera was so ornery, and he's like, no, I refuse. I will not take him out. And Rockefeller said, he kind of threatened, and he said, if you don't take Lenin out, then the work is going to be destroyed. And Rivera knew that the work would make more of an impact through its destruction than it would through its slight revision. And so he stuck to his grounds. The mural was destroyed, never to be completed. And then Rivera took the money from the commission and he did a companion piece in Mexico City. So essentially the same thing. The only addition is on the left-hand side, so the bad side. He added an image of Rockefeller right above a a disease cell of syphilis. Wow. And yeah, that's crazy. And you think about that work was buffed. You know what I mean? To think about what an what a tremendous important undertaking that was actually just buffed. You know, you, you see that whole scene go down in the movie Frida. You see that whole Rockefeller issue with that painting. That be, that that's kind of an interesting part of of that of Frida the movie where you actually see it. It's so anybody wants to see that movie. We've spoken about it before, but it's interesting. And it was the Progress Administration. So you you were right. The WPA. Oh, awesome. Uh, another painting that, of course, we have to discuss is the 3rd of May by Francisco, Francisco de Goya. Take it away. And that painting was another one of those pieces that you just look at and go, whoa, oh, my God, that's incredible. The painting was done in 1814 about the uh, Spanish army's resistance to Napoleon coming in and basically obliterating them. It was in the Peninsular War. And that painting has a very, you know, Goya was an interesting artist because he, because he was a court painter. And he was, he was very skillful, but he was also very political and stylized. You know, he had done paintings like uh, Saturn devouring his children, and yet he did very traditional paintings as well. And so he was one of those artists that was 
all over the place, like a real true artist in the word of artist. He wasn't a sellout, uh, although he had done sellout things. Uh, but he was he was a wonderful emotional artist. I feel like he was a good draftsman. He wasn't like a Velasquez, but he was goddamn good. And he did a lot of depictions uh, of war and really the horrors and atrocities of war. And this painting here, uh, the 3rd of May, was, was really about that 1808 moment where Napoleon's army comes in and they're assassinating uh, all these people. And the light is focusing brightly on the main central figure while everyone seems to be painted, everyone else is painted in this kind of like restricted palette of grays and gray yellows. And it's very, very intensely powerful. And this one is actually at the Prado as well. And it's said that this painting had influenced Picasso's Guernica. So going back, you know, all the way to your initial talk about Guernica, you know, this was this was one of his biggest inspirations. And another really significant element to note about this work is mm-hmm. that you mentioned that his clothing is lighter than the local a, color palette. It's illuminated. Right, He's it's illuminated. Yeah. yeah, but his body position also echoes Christ, the, Christ yeah, on a cross, right? Does. So he is this martyred figure mm-hmm. and the visual illusion between this contemporary figure and then the the figure of Christ that is imprinted in the minds of most viewers, most consumers of art. I think that was highly intentional. And another important element of this work is that Goya is not painting something allegorical, like liberty leading the people. It's not mythological. It's not even overtly religious. Mm -hmm. It is contemporary. And that is a really disruptive, cool change within the space of romantic art. Yeah, it's it's very non-traditional in a way. And they say it's like really, in a lot of ways, a lot of art historians think about it, it's, per, it's perhaps one of the most, you know, the beginning of modern art painting. Kenneth Clark said the 3rd of May, 1808, is the first great picture which can be called revolutionary in every sense of the word, in style, in subject, and in intention. Because it diverges from the typical Christiana, you know, Christian uh, narratives, and it really is. And it's also style-wise, like painted really loosely, suggestively. And a lot of art back then was highly rendered and not impressionistic and and emotionally painted. Yeah, the brushwork was typically very precise, and Goya loosens the movement of his wrist and that imprints the canvas with more personality, with more movement, with more energy, with more fear, with all of that. And at the time, the expectation of historical art was that it be historical and that it be not tethered to the contemporary moment. And I think that's why his work was such a revolutionary idea because he's embracing the recent history and he's showing people in contemporary dress and not historical, not in togas. And he was among the first to really embrace that concept. And so with that in mind, I agree that uh, with Ken Clark, that it is a among the first modern paintings and a great example of something that's been politicized. And I wanted to scoot a little bit more to 
contemporary art because if we don't talk about Ai Weiwei, this episode was a waste. Mm. He is, in my opinion, the most significant contemporary artist, specifically an artist who generates political content. And he is Chinese. And I think if you guys have heard of him, it's probably for his unlawful arrest in yeah. 2011. I remember there were tons of that, protests. Yeah. yeah, at LACMA. Is he still in jail? No, no, no. He okay. was only in jail for 81 days. But he has been very vocal about his criticisms of communism and the Chinese government and all sorts of, actually not just China, but I think because he focused his criticism on China, that's why it was so inflammatory that he that he eventually was thrown in jail for being more vocal about, about his dissent. But he has a series where he criticizes not just Chinese institutions of power, but power that's problematic throughout the world. And he takes photographs of places that are imbued with, with the government that he sees as deeply fractured. And then he photographs him, his um, own hand flipping the bird. So we have Ai Weiwei's hand with the middle finger up, and it's a whole series. There's Tiananmen Square, there's the White House, any area. So no government is safe. If it is deeply systemically fractured, then Ai Weiwei is going to challenge it. And I think that is phenomenally courageous. And he used his experience, the uh, his time in jail, those 81 days, as fodder for his art. And he reconstructed some of the moments that he had to withstand into these almost life-size dioramas. And so viewers are able to experience something that is deeply private and closed behind doors uh, intentionally. And so now he's taking that experience of jail and all of the inequities that ensued, but he's putting that in a public space. So go out and vote. Is that our... <laughs> is <laughs> yes, that the, please vote. This is, this is agenda. Wait, are uh, we done? Driven. Let's talk about no, the Gorilla no, 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 Girls. No, no, but but there's so yeah. I mean, look, there's let's take a let's take a step back and and say that most artists are not political, but oftentimes the work can be politicized and can also become political in retrospect. Some artists are very political, and like for example, Gustave Doré. I think Doré did some wonderful political, even though he did a lot of just interpretations, a lot of narratives and mythological interpretations and illustrations. I think Doré was 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 political. I think Daumier was only political, like most of Anwar Daumier's work. Not talking about his paintings, just third class carriage, but I'm talking about his particularly his lithographs of the judicial system in France. In mocking it, satirizing it. I think somebody like a Daumier is a political artist, period. You know what I mean? And I think that in the context of art, there are a lot of artists that are that are that are political and a lot of artists who are not going to get any shine whatsoever right now. You know what I mean? I think Rockwell later in his life did some very poignant political paintings. Uh so we're, we're, we're really going fast through this, through this <laughs> subject. And I think that we have to, we have to just acknowledge, take a, take a moment to breathe and acknowledge that there are a tremendous amount of political artists. Aaron Magruder, another wonderful, uh, 
artist slash creator of the boondocks. And Aaron uh, is a very politically motivated guy and a deep and critical thinker of the system. And his work, you know, which lived as a comic strip before it became a TV show, uh, is important. And I think there are, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these guys were just going to kind of shoot through, but there are people who have spent their lives trying to change the system with the work that they do, with the work that they create. Right, which is such a beautiful way to let your art function in the world, that it has a function. Mm -hmm. And to use your art as a vehicle for your activism is, I think, a, a cool and effective thing to do. I disagree that not all art, or that only a few artists are political, or you said not all artists are political. I actually think that all art is political, but there are different political agendas. Some are maybe the denial of politics, which is just as much an acceptance of politics. And I'm thinking of the minimalists, for instance, when they were making art and minimal art would be like something that Donald Judd made, where it is the death of the artist, the removal of his hand. Everything is prefabricated. It is systematized in a grid. There is no representational content. And minimalism came out in the United States in 1965. And 1965 was an incredibly political time. We have the Vietnam War. We have the Watts riots. So many things are going on, assassinations. And it's not that these artists weren't political and weren't aware, but they were conscious of removing this political bent of their work, which I think is the inverse of political art, which is therefore still political. Well, I disagree with you because you disagree with me. So how, so basically <laughs> my disagreement is how dare you disagree with me? And I'm going to disagree with you on that. But I will say that I do disagree with you in principle because I don't think all art is political art. I think that you get artists like, uh, for example, Richard Schmidt. Richard Schmidt's one of the greatest painters alive today, but he paints, you know, beautiful landscapes. Is that political? I mean, sure, you could argue that, but you would be giving a context that I don't really think exists, is not part of his agenda. Is, uh, you know, just looking around my room is J.C. Leindecker, who is one of the greatest draftsmen in the history of the world, a uh, student of Bouguereau, him and his brother Frank, were phenomenal draftsmen who they created the he created the arrowhead collar man is his work political it's not political it doesn't have an agenda i think a political artist is like a paul conrad who 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 is a political cartoonist and takes shots at the establishment and criticizes it from a constructive visual perspective and i think when you look at artists that are more illustrators or narrative artists, I don't necessarily think that all artists are political or have a political bent. I think they can be perhaps by other people or like you said, yeah, sure, minimalists or, you know, you look at the Ashcan school. Yeah, absolutely. It's political commentary for sure. But I think that there are artists that just paint beautiful bucolic things, like people who do still lives and people who do landscapes and plain air painters. I don't I think some of them can be political relative to the subject that they're painting. You know, plain air painters who are painting industry, perhaps there is commentary on industrialization and automata, you know, the a different point of view, but I think that some artists are just doing pretty little flowers. And that's it. I don't think every artist has a political agenda. Probably, or, or I mean, yeah, sure. So it's 
So you wrong were wrong. To speak. No, <laughs> I am all wrong. No, it's probably not correct to speak in superlatives, but from my perspective as a visual thinker, not as a maker, mm-hmm. I think it matters knowing the artist's intent, but that that is not the entire story. How it lives, how it is reviewed by those who didn't have any hand in its making is just as important. And for me, maybe it's just because my lens is a little bit more politicized, but I see a shade of politics in most art that I encounter. And maybe that's true for some people. Maybe it's not as true for others, but certainly be critical of the agenda because art always is informed by an agenda and often that agenda is political. Yeah. And, you know, you look at like Michelangelo and it's so hard to say that that was political, but at the same time, it has a, it has a deeper meaning than just politics, which can be surface. I mean, it's got a, uh, some of those artists like, like a Michelangelo or Rembrandt have, have a universal truth to them. It's a lot about aesthetics and, and death and life and beliefs. And so that goes in a lot of ways to a whole other level of politics, right? Oh, religion is yeah, absolutely religion, you know political. I mean? no, for, for sure, for sure. And people often employ artists and commission artists to be their political, for their own political agenda so that the artist just becomes a tool. You know, and that's, I feel like Michelangelo too really felt like I, I'm kind of being, like I'm just a tool for you, you know, or a tool for God. So there's always that side as well, which is, which can be a, a much more nefarious agenda than just you coming up with your own, you know, point of view. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And David is another example of that. When he was commissioned Are to Are you paint... talking about Jacques-Louis David? Jacques-Louis David, oui, <laughs> mais oui. <laughs> when he was commissioned by Napoleon to paint, uh, to illustrate Napoleon's epic crossing of the Alps, he asked if Napoleon would sit for him. And Napoleon refused. He said, no, it doesn't matter what I look like. It just matters that my greatness lives on in this painting. And there were many elements of You don't want to fuck that painting up, by the way. What? He, 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 he would not want to come into his studio and fuck that painting up. That would have been off with your head. Yeah, Could right. Could you imagine? <laughs> no, I cannot. Napoleon was an intense Brutal. little critter. <laughs> but also he was really savvy because he knew that art is such an effective tool for propaganda. And we know historically that Napoleon crossed the Alps on a donkey. But that doesn't seem nearly as grandiose and majestic. And so he asked David, or maybe David just intuited, that he should paint Napoleon on this rearing, beautiful, majestic horse with these rippling, uh, this rippling mane. And that's just one example of the manipulation. But again, the agenda is to make Napoleon seem like this aggrandized, heroic figure. And that's a good point, because I don't think about Napoleon, I mean, David, Jacques-Louis David, as a political artist, you know, and all his wonderful paintings and Death of Marad, Napoleon. I don't think of him necessarily, but you make a good point. We're now like, oh yeah, I could think about it in that context. And he's a, all of a sudden, Jacques-Louis David becomes, you know, not this great interpreter of these epic moments, but he becomes a political painter, you know, and fulfilling an agenda for some other thing that you don't even think about, which is good, cool to get the backstory because you're like, wow, that's fascinating. And side note, David was the teacher of Aang 
Jean-Dominique Ang, who was the teacher of Edgar Degas, and the lineage continues. Right, which ne- is... And he was also a neoclassicist, Jacques-Louis David. Yes. And I just think that politics is inescapable. And even if somebody oh, yeah. is painting in a non-representational way, like Pollock, uh, you can't talk about Pollock and not discuss the place politically that the U.S. was starting to form in the wake of World War II. And the fact that now we are the artistic tastemaker. You can't look at Jasper Johns's flag from 1955 and not discuss Cold War politics. So right. I think that even if on the surface something seems like it is apolitical, if you dig a little bit further, then maybe you'll find a counter-narrative to that. Well, once again, a convincing argument from Lizzie Daston, ladies and gentlemen. Yay! <laughs> Thank you for listening and have an amazing day. And go vote.